This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isva Hardman and Fraser Nelson. So we have news today of another MP saying they plan to stand down in the next general election, but is not a Tory MP. It's actually the Green Party's only MP, Caroline Lucas. Isabel, she's spoken about the pressures of her role. What do you make of her decision? Yeah, so this is a sort of Tony Benn leaving Parliament to spend more time doing politics exit rather than someone who's who's fundamentally had enough of the the political world. And Caroline Lucas, obviously the, the only Green MP ever, the sole Green MP in Parliament at the moment, has had to really work out how to operate as a political loner uh, throughout her career. And it's been very interesting to see how she's done that and how she has had to sort of trim back her expectations as well. Because when you're not in a party and you don't have the the structures that are often popularly maligned, like the whips, for instance, you just do not have time to keep across the parliamentary timetable, to keep across the legislative agenda, to keep across the detail of legislation. And I remember when I met up with her a few years after she'd been elected, she said that she just decided that she had to focus on certain things because there was no way she could stay across everything and she also had to rely on the help also of like-minded MPs particularly in the Labour Party who would tell her what their whip was or what their faction was going to do in terms of a particular vote so that she could work out where to go and she also has had some regular criticisms of Parliament in terms of the way it works and she repeated those today so she said that she felt like she wasted a lot of time in Parliament Uh, she's always been very anti what she sees as an outdated voting system where you have to do it with your feet walking through the lobbies often for hours at a time because you can't vote electronically so for every single amendment to a bill you know you might spend three hours voting for instance if it's a particularly big or controversial bill And so I think it's interesting because I think she has concluded that really in her space you can't achieve very much in Parliament. And if you look back at what she has achieved and what she says she has achieved, I think it was getting the Natural History GCSE onto the curriculum. Now, I mean, I personally think that's great that Natural History is being taught, but I don't think it's the sort of big game-changing reform that if you were in a mainstream political party, you'd necessarily say set you out as a leading light and that shows how hard it is to achieve anything when you're not in a big political block and so I think there's you know there's a lesson there for people like Andy Burnham a favourite on this podcast who says that you should do away with the whipping system in Westminster because it's fundamentally a bad thing actually it shows how important that is but also for those who try to come in and want to reform parliament and want to get things done what you can get done and what you can't get done even if you're someone as energetic as Caroline Lucas has been with her time in parliament. Phrase it's interesting timing too because you just had the local elections where the Greens did I think surprisingly well exceeded expectations definitely caught the Tories by surprise and there are hopes that Caroline Lucas would have not been the only uh, Green MP by the time of the next election do you think we're about to see a Green surge despite her exit? 
It's very interesting to see the, the voting patterns. I mean, the Greens, you're right, Katie, in the last month's local elections, they did very well indeed. They took majority control of Mid-Suffolk Council. I mean, I think there's they've got a minority control somewhere. But this is, if you look at the voting pattern, we see the Greens on a rising, a rising path. Caroline Lucas has perhaps been the best-known Green MP. She's been elected three times to parliaments and her system is pretty difficult for a minority party to actually win a seat. She increased her majority every time and if you look at the local election results in Brighton and Hove, the Greens are still as strong there as ever. So there's no sign of a sort of green fading that you see in the rest of Europe because this is the trend when you look at the continent. You see the German Greens struggling, you see the green agenda coming into conflict with the cost of living agenda, with energy prices and you see reality biting for a lot of a lot of the net zero policies which are being cast by the wayside. I think the problems that Greens face in Britain is that our two parties, or the main two parties, are very, very good at copying the policies of challengers. So if they see energy behind a Green Party, then both of them will adopt. For example, I think Theresa May was one of the first leaders in the world to make a legally binding um, pledge to meet net zero um, by 2050. And I think when you're getting Labour and the Tories trying to outgreen each other, it does make it more difficult for Greens to get a look in. But right now, I think that the Greens have been the exception in Britain because they are on the rise where they're on the wane on the continent. Now, to the COVID inquiry. Isabel, Richard is facing more calls today to call off the judicial review and just release the messages. It doesn't seem as though the government is going to do that anytime soon. But in terms of the staging of the inquiry, how quickly do you think it will be before we learn something um, when it comes to the witness evidence? Yeah, so I mean, you've obviously written an important column on this in the latest Spectator, out today. And uh, you've been explaining why, for Rishi Sunak, this is becoming a real, a real headache and why any advice from anyone who's been through a public inquiry before is don't do it and I think there is a sort of it there, it's one of those things in Westminster culture uh, where if you can't co- call for a cobra meeting you call for a public inquiry and it can be very attractive to prime ministers because it can kick things uh, down the road it, it allow people to evade some kind of accountability because often they you know take ages to to, to report back and so on. But this is becoming very inconvenient because of this demand for, for the messages. And it came up at uh, a really painfully dull Deputy Prime Minister's questions yesterday, where you had Oliver Dowden claiming that the reason the government didn't want to release these messages to Heather Hallett was that they contained intimate details of people's medical conditions, which I, I think is uh, interesting verdict on a senior judge's judgment as to what would be relevant for the inquiry that she would suddenly start saying oh yes actually that rash that you had is something that's within scope of our uh, uh, of our investigations but you know, as you say that there are lots of spurious reasons being thrown around for not cooperating fully and it's becoming increasingly apparent that this isn't the convenient thing to resort to and in fact even if the covid inquiry were to take 10 years to report back, like, for instance, Chilcot, it can be a huge inconvenience now and take up a huge amount of government time and energy. Fraser, have you got much confidence that the right lessons are going to be learned? 
If journalists do their job properly, then yes. I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me in your column, Katie, is you were talking about the Perfumo affair 60 years ago, and you got the um, the Denning report into that affair, one of the best public inquiries ever. You can read it now, it's like a novel, absolutely fantastic. 100 days it took him to do that, into this incredibly difficult who said what to whom when inquiries. Now, of course, the stakes in the pandemic are, are higher, but Sweden came out with its report 18 months ago. And I think that, the, sadly, the COVID inquiry's main objective is to is to kick things into the long grass and to to provide a shield for politicians to hide behind, saying, I'm not going to answer this question, I'm going to wait until the inquiry. Meanwhile, though, a new pathogen can be around any minute, and it's really important that these messages are learned pretty quickly because we've still got the failed apparatus of SAGE, etc., in place. Um, I think it's pretty reprehensible, really, what's happening now. But there is no law, meaning that nobody can ask questions meanwhile. There's no inquiry, um, as you wrote, Katie, in um, America, no inquiry in Germany, no national inquiry anyway. There needn't have been an inquiry in Britain. I actually think it'd be better now if there wasn't one. Because if there wasn't one, then everybody would be asking the very important questions about how could we have avoided this damage. But nothing is stopping us asking these questions. And I do think this is where journalism has a role to play. There's nothing stopping us talking to people, putting together reports, trying to reveal what really happened. I think the Daily Telegraph did a lot of this with the Matt Hancock um, lockdown files, printed did a great public service in revealing just the extent to which that politics was dressed up as science. I think a few more of these investigations and we can get a good uh, list of things, of lessons to learn next time. And just finally, Isabel, we've both been in the Commons today. Strange. It feels as though it's almost recess when Mm. you speak to MPs. There's so little sense of momentum. Obviously, there's a lot happening in the Lords. What do we think is going on? Yeah, it's um, something that I've been doing a bit of writing on today, actually. And uh, I was watching Business Statement in the Commons earlier with shadow leader of the House, Thangham Debonair, complaining that MPs had been going home early for the past few weeks, there was nothing to do, you know, what was going on. And it's interesting because when you talk to really any special advisor in any kind of department that might be planning to deliver something, which is generally what government departments are supposed to do, they'll say, oh, we're waiting for parliamentary time for this. And that just sounds bananas because there is a lot of parliamentary time and really the business is dominated now by urgent questions and ministerial statements rather than legislation and the urgent questions really form the, the main sort of fare for MPs. That's possibly a good thing for scrutiny although they do tend to, to focus on the same things week after week and what's going on is that actually firstly we're you know heading towards an election and if you look back at the 2015 election about 18 months before that parliament started to go very very quiet to the extent that we all started complaining that it was a zombie parliament because the coalition government then needed to start differentiating between the two parties couldn't really introduce those many that many pieces of legislation that the two agreed on both parties wanted to go into campaign mode now that was understandable perhaps given you had two parties in government we officially only have one party in government at the moment but really it's a party with a big inner party inner faction of MPs who just are not going to vote for a lot of things that Rishi Sunak might be minded to do on for instance planning reform or social care or some of the big issues of the day that 
a prime minister who likes to pitch themselves as being serious and somebody who can solve problems and get things done might quite reasonably want to resolve. He knows that he's not got the votes. He doesn't want to highlight the fact that he doesn't have the votes. And so there's this stasis as a result of that. So we are really coming to the, you know, the next election, much in the same state as the Conservatives were without a majority, but officially with one. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.